0: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with Lou Wise, the founder and CEO of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're having some fun, the podcast, pre-podcast, talking with our guest, Dr. Chris Keel, because he always brings an air of levity to whatever we talk about, and we're grateful. Believe me, Chris, thanks for being with us again.
1: You yeah, know, you're so welcome.
2: We're not sure if the things he says are actually factual, but they yeah, are humorous
1: that's that's the important thing you know it's like it may be completely bs but was it amusing you know that's the important
2: there you go
0: are economists factual
1: (laughs) well (laughs) let's put it this way you know the old the old adage is true if you put five economists in a room you're going to get five different opinions six if one's from harvard um so it's (laughs) it's just kind of kind of the way it works
0: Well, we're all having fun watching the moving dartboard of, uh, it has recession on it, but nobody can seem to hit it. Uh, The ACES report, I have to tell you, has been excellent. You you and I talked about it with Lou uh, six months ago, and you said this is the way it's going to be according to our, our report, and it's dead on.
1: Yeah, it really has been. It's been interesting. And I'll talk just briefly about what the ACES is and where it came from and what we hope it does. Several years ago, we were working on a project for a client who was trying to figure out the connection between manufacturing activity and transportation. So we kept trying to figure out if there were variables that would push in one direction or another. And we discovered that we could actually do some predictability studies around the industrial sector. Then we discovered that nobody really isolates manufacturing. They do look at industrial production, but if anyone's ever looked at the industrial production numbers, it includes manufacturing, utilities, and mining. And mining basically is oil and gas. So it was hard to get a feel for just manufacturing. So we pulled that part out and did the ACES around it. The guy that has developed our statistical analysis used to be in the artillery he was an officer and he pointed out that in his previous incarnation accuracy was really really important otherwise you blew up things you didn't want to blow up so his very complicated system of variables was applied to manufacturing, and we've ended up with this 96, 97% accuracy rate with this mind-numbing collection of 26 variables, and we're trying to constantly watch these and see what's influencing what, and what we started to see several months ago was that a lot of what was happening in manufacturing was being driven by obviously the supply chain and more specifically the breakdown of the supply chain that the just in time system had become the eventually maybe system and people were trying to adjust to this by either changing who they got their supply from or laying in more inventory that inventory boost was a lot of what drove manufacturing for a while And then we saw the slump as companies were doing a little less of that inventory accumulation. But as it's recovered and we're starting to see that show up this year, that's a more traditional motivator. It's actually demand. It's actually people who are wanting the products that are being produced by the manufacturers. And because we've had more reshoring, we've seen a bit more of that activity really focusing on the US economy. So we've been really happy with A, the predictability, and B, we've been happy because it's pointing in the right direction. So it would have been great to say, hey, we're really accurate. We're gonna go into a complete breakdown, but we've been accurate. And it's like, no, we like that it's accurate and positive.
2: This almost sounds like the article that I read last night in Astronomer magazine where they were talking about the ghost light of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's about as understandable as your recent comments.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, it's it's like astronomers, economists survive out of confusing everybody else um, because then you wouldn't be needed because people would say, well, yeah, I understand this. this why do I need you? And it's like, no, no, it's infinitely more complicated than that. Cause we use the word infinite almost as much as they do. Um uh, so yeah.
2: yeah. And they have no clue what infinite
1: means. They don't, neither do we. Um, so <laughs> it you know, it's it it there's an infinite number of possibilities, let's put it that way. Okay,
2: there you go.
0: We'll just know when we reach the post horizonal vortex
1: where we're <laughs> at. Exactly. You know, we're just hanging on for the singularity. You know, that's, you know, at some point we'll all discover we're part of Matrix and that'll be the end of it. Um, So, yeah, but to to the point of what we can expect recession wise, there was a pretty substantial shift in attitude really in the last couple of weeks. And not to go into ridiculous detail, but there's an organization that meets every year the World Economic Forum, very strange group. Um, It isn't an organization per se. It does not have a mandate. It's not government. It's just a meeting. And every year, everyone gets together in Davos and it's economists and treasury. The weird part about the WEF is that it also attracts celebrities. And I've never really understood this, but if you went to it last year, you would have heard the presentation on the global economy by the Jonas Brothers.
2: <laughs>
1: you know, So talk about having your finger on the pulse. What was interesting about the WEF this year, and they just met a couple of weeks ago, they were incredibly depressed going into the meeting. Everyone, World Bank, IMF, IBRD, all of them, were all saying it's gonna be a horrible year, horrible recession, everything will be terrible. Two days later, before the meeting was even over, they had all changed their minds. And all of a sudden, the IMF was saying, oh, it's not going to be so bad. And the World Bank, you're right, it's not going to be so bad. The Europeans were saying, oh, we thought we were going into recession. We probably won't. And it's like, what happened? What happened in 48 hours that would change their tune? And what it came down to is they looked at their own data as we are all very familiar when your boss goes to a big meeting right before they go to a big meeting you feed the boss with all this stuff that they can talk about at the big meeting <clears throat> so all these people showed up at the big meeting and they hadn't read the stuff their people had given them yet and then they get to the meeting and it's like well i'll be damn look what chuck wrote that's amazing i had no idea you know chuck Chuck's pretty enthusiastic. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, yeah, because it looks like inflation has peaked, and commodity prices are coming down, and shipping rates are coming down, none of them back to what they were before, but pointing in the right direction. So all of a sudden, you've got more ammunition for the people who are looking at a soft landing, a slowdown more than a full blown recession, which doesn't mean that some sectors won't get hit hard. And and we know that. I mean, that's <clears throat> some sectors are much more sensitive to what's going on in the economy than others.
2: Was so- Chris Santos there? What's that? Was George Santos?
1: No, I. Well, he said he was, um, um, and and he he said that he gave all of the speeches and and was able to mimic all the world leaders, and and so they didn't actually have to show. He just did it all.
2: Got it. Okay. Well, we're all happy with his presence.
0: Yes. Chris, one of the things they talk about in Davos is the Great Reset. Right what
1: is it? Yeah, the great reset. It's, you know, it's one of those terms that the media got a hold of and the economists were like, I'm really sorry I said that. Um, so because <laughs> we're not altogether sure how we can define it. There is a recognition that three or four major things have changed in the last two or three years that we now have to adjust to. Um, Obviously, the supply chain is number one, that we are seeing reshoring in the U.S. and Europe. We're seeing new countries come into the fold that weren't there before. India is getting a lot more attention than they used to. China is getting a lot less. So that's one. One other one that is pretty significant is what's going on with employment. Because when you look at the Fed and what they try to determine when it comes to their interest rate policy, the mantra of a central bank is we increase interest rates until we break something. (laughs) Once we've broken it, then we set about lowering interest rates to fix what it was we broke. And what they usually use to determine if they've broken the economy is employment. So they say, look, as soon as the unemployment rate starts going up, then we know we've done enough and we don't need to raise rates anymore, except that now the unemployment situation is harder to evaluate. Um, I've been running into this at all the meetings that I've been going to. Companies that said, look, under normal circumstances, I would have laid people off. I've had enough of a slowdown in business that I could do that. But it took me so long to find these people. I am not going to let them go. I'm going to find something for them to do because I don't want to lose them. I was talking to a guy who says, I've got six-figure income machinists sweeping the floor because I'm not about to lose these guys. I don't have anything for them to do right now, but I will. And I don't want to go through what I went through two years ago, trying to recruit these guys. So I'm going to keep them. That's upset the kind of the layoff argument. You also run into a lot of the conversation around IT and say, well, look at all those layoffs. I mean, Amazon laid off 18,000 and Microsoft laid off 10,000. What didn't get followed up in the press was that when Amazon laid off those people, 85% of them, had new jobs in 48 hours (laughs) they're i.t i mean what happened was what you'd predict would happen they got laid off by tier one companies microsoft amazon whatever well the tier two three and four companies said hi i have been trying to hire an it person now for three years now that you've been fired by amazon would you come to work for me And these guys were snapped up instantly. So even that didn't really affect the unemployment rate as we saw last week when it was better than we thought. So the other big reset is how do we handle employment now? How do we deal with the gig economy? Uh, People that are working Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, whatever. We track unemployment by the household survey, among other things, where we ask people, is there anybody working in the household? Many of the people working Uber, Lyft, DoorDash say no. Are you working? No. You've been driving that car every day for three, three years. Yeah, but it's not a real job. I don't have to. If I decide not to tomorrow, there's no one to answer to. There's no boss and I've got to call into. I just don't sign in not a real job so how do we count you you're working no i'm not yes you are no i'm not yes you are no i'm not and you know and it's like okay fine um you know how do we categorize you and and there's lots and lots of people doing that kind of work i think i've talked about it before about the dry cleaners association noting that millions of women decided to make a living doing other people's laundry. Internet laundry has become their biggest threat because these women got sent home in 2020, take care of their kids, still had to make money, started doing other people's laundry, average take home 350 bucks a day, tax free. Or oh. you can go take a minimum wage job for 15 bucks an hour, get paid 120 bucks a day and pay taxes. Hmm. Wonder what I'll do.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I thought the great reset was going to be that they all got together in Davos and simply cut off the last three digits of so their national debt. And if you were in the trillions, you're not one of the billions and it wasn't so painful.
1: Yeah, exactly. We we try that periodically. Nobody buys it. Um, yeah, it's it's everyone got together. When the subject of debt came up, it was kind of like hmm, 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 It's just like, put your fingers in your ears and go to your happy place. I mean, it's just... It's it's yeah, it's it's endemic. And when I talk about the U.S. national debt, I said, if it makes you feel any better, um, our debt to GDP ratio is about one hundred and twenty five percent now never should be above 60. So we've kind of blown that out of the water. But China is two hundred and eighty percent of GDP. Japan's two hundred and sixty percent of GDP. The average in Europe is one hundred and seventy percent of GDP. We are the most fiscally responsible country in the world.
2: That's frightening.
1: And if yeah, if that doesn't make you start to weep, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like ten guys sitting around looking at maxed out credit cards. We only have nine, so we win because everybody else had ten. Um, so, so
2: <laughs> and and one of my favorite sayings, of course, is that, the debt is never going to be paid in the first place.
1: Right. No, I mean, <laughs> and, and to a large extent, that's understood, but it's always the real issue with the debt and every country that really grapples with it, it comes down to debt service. It comes down to the fact that you've got to pay the people who bought your debt. And the U.S. now is laying out close to $500 billion a year in debt service. So... Every time we talk about, gee, I wish we had money for this and wish we had money for that. Well, you might have if you weren't paying out $500 billion a year in debt service, because that's now the fifth largest category of federal spending. You know, it's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the military, and debt service. And we're almost to the military now. Military is about $700 billion a year, and debt service is at five. So you get to a point where at some point you need to do something as every individual ever has to do in every business who either spend less or bring in more. And the government is like, well, I don't want to spend less because that will make the constituents unhappy. No, I don't want to raise any more money because that's taxes. So I'll just keep borrowing. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the like they did with the Social Security trust fund mm-hmm. there's an oxymoron for you when they created yeah. the money, supposed to go in and stay there and be invested so it could be we could live off the interest Had we actually left the money alone
1: yeah money exactly
0: borrowed it
1: well and and the other problem is that you know people make these assumptions about critical things like how long people live So when Social Security was established, the demographics basically said that, you know, we're going to set 65 as the age of retirement. Why is that? Well, because people are supposed to be dead at 66. So, you know, we're only going to have to pay for them for a year or two. Well, you know, leave it to the boomers to throw things off and say, ha, we're going to live into our 90s (laughs) for longer. Um, You're going to be paying for us for Decades. And well, we've managed to bankrupt the social security system as every country in the world is facing. I mean, you think we have problems. You ought to look at countries with really aged populations like Japan and much of Europe. I mean, they've they just pensions are now just part of the annual Government expenditure conversation. you know, they don't even pretend to have so, a trust fund.
2: So do you think that the global warming and earthquakes and tsunamis are a benefit to our economic <laughs> station in
1: life? Only if it gets the old people, you know, I mean, it's yeah. like you know it's like it's like we we've got to be selective about this. I mean, I was listening to a guy saying if you really wanted to to make war useful, you wouldn't draft 20-year-olds, you would draft Um, (laughs) 80-year-olds. And it's like, okay, you know, time to go to war, Grandpa. Um,
0: One of the things we've talked about in the past, Chris, and you're a great Russia student, is the uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, Mm -hmm. what they thought was going to be a bitter winter in Europe and Russia was going to have everybody by, uh, and it didn't happen. Right. Um, and that's, oil $50 a barrel. How is um, Russia. Russia doing?
1: Yeah, Russia's is doing very badly. Um, they have set their economy back by at least 20 years. And it's going to be a long time recovering. And we don't even know when that would start. When the whole pipeline conversation began decades ago, there was a lot of debate as to who was more vulnerable that if Europe became dependent on Russian gas and oil, would that not give the Russians a tremendous advantage? And the argument at the time was, well, yeah, but we'll we'll deal with that. But we're also seeing how vulnerable that makes Russia, because what Europe has done in this last year is find other sources. And that was always the argument, that Russia is not in a position to sell as much of its output as it would like to other countries because its pipeline pokes into Europe. So if you're not selling it to Europe, you have to find some other route. And of course, they're selling more to India and China, but they have a tremendous investment in an infrastructure that they may not have much use for going forward if Europe continues to buy from the other sources they have discovered. The Europeans are buying more from North Africa. They're buying more from the Middle East. They're buying more from us. Um, They're developing their own resources. I mean, we forget that there's an awful lot of North Sea oil. Um, The British have been selling it. The Norwegians have been selling it. And now you're starting to see even the Germans thinking about, well, maybe we need a more diverse energy policy and we're not going to be able to rely exclusively on wind and solar And so now they're talking about trying to get into fracking too. Um, So you've seen a a pretty wholesale change in how people treat energy and it has isolated Russia quite a bit. And you're right, they did not have the bitter winter they thought they were going to have. So Europe is now declaring, we have enough energy to get us through April. Um, And once we get it to spring, we're good to go. And the... That's one of the reasons Europeans are now saying, I don't think we're gonna hit recession. We're gonna have anemic growth, but it's not gonna be pushing into negative territory. The latest estimate I saw was 0.7%, you know, which is pretty awful, but it's not as bad as negative two, which was what was being talked about last fall.
2: Another thing with regards to Europe uh, and elsewhere, is the, the newer technology of uh, tidal or mm-hmm. uh, wave technology, which mm-hmm. is really quite incredible. Uh, Norway's using it, Sweden is using mm-hmm. it, and uh, some rather significant percentages of their energy is coming from right. tidal
1: technology. Exactly. And there's lots of these kind of of specific energy generators. I think one of the mindset changes is that we've gotten so used to kind of having a central utility, we have a power plant, and everybody connects to the power plant, and that's how you get your power. But now we're beginning to see more diversity saying, you know, if you are going to own an electric car you can either plug into the grid or you know you could put solar panels on your garage and charge up your own car Um, or you could put a little windmill in your backyard you can look at areas you know for example iceland for years has used geothermal power because they're basically sitting on a volcano and it's like well not only do we have these great pools that we can go chill out in but we can use this stuff to to run our energy i mean it, it surprises people to learn that iceland's one of the leading producers of aluminum even though they have no bauxite because they have power and the bauxite gets delivered to iceland and 60 percent of the cost of aluminum smelting is power and the iceland there's like we got lots of power we are on a volcano <laughs> so. Yeah,
0: no doubt. I'd, I'd love to carry this on, but we try to keep tight show to 23 minutes because we're syndicating across uh, radio these days with our podcast.
1: So Very we good. appreciate
0: you being with us and we look forward to next month.
1: Very good. I look forward to it as well. Have a good afternoon.
0: Thanks. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Manufacturing Talk Radio podcast.